appreciate the worship team leading the worship congregation to say, Lord, how we need a Savior. That prepares us for the next portion of this morning's worship service, which is to take our Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35. This morning already God has uh, graciously led us in our time together through a call to worship Him. We started our service this way, and then Pastor Will led us through a confession that we remain in need of His grace, but assurance that in Christ that grace is sufficient for our need. Right now, we're going to go to the Word, and there's going to be a consecration of His people. We are continually being set apart in Christ's likeness to the glory of the Father. The service will continue, and you will hear at the end a commission to not just come here and be hearers of the Word, but to go and be doers of the Word. So this portion of our time on this Lord's Day is from Exodus chapter 35. And we'll start reading in verse 20. Exodus 35 and verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all of its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing hearts, brought brooches and earrings, signet rings, armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns of fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram's skin or goat skin brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood or any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarn, fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun of goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stone and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate, spices of oil and light for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women of the people whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. We'll see this morning, not just that paragraph, but we'll see where they start constructing the temple and how they use their skill throughout the rest of chapter 35 and into chapter 36. You can be seated. Children can be dismissed to children's church. And be taught by all those newfound workers as of today. What we see here in this text is a record of obedient people doing what was commanded. And I, I want to make it very clear that it has never been intended, or should it ever happen, that our response to that record of obedience be to admire or somehow even idolize the worker. The point of this revelation of Scripture is not to admire these people who obeyed and did what God had commanded, but rather to see the power of God that conditioned their obedience. And ultimately, as we read this text, and we read the 
expression of their covenant obedience, we should be left with a longing, an appetite for a better covenant, its better sacrifice, its better mediator, and its better production. So we're going to get a glimpse here of something that is good. But it should ultimately point us to something much better. The title for this morning is Doing What is Commanded. God had commanded his people. Of course, we know they violated and broke the terms of covenant in its command. He, however, in this text, is graciously forgiving them. And the lesson that they are living through is that they have been restored. At least in some part due to the mediation of Moses who hadn't participated in their sin. I I want you to see that. God had given them instruction. They broke his word. They violated the instruction. Moses was up on the mountain meeting with God at the time that it happened. Moses came back down from the mountain and God says, this is the judgment I want you to pour out on the people. You remember? And the Levites went back and forth, north and south, east and west, and mowed down unrepentant sinners with the sword. And in the chapters that followed, it became clear that God had every right in his righteousness to eliminate these people from the face of the earth, to erase them, and just keep Moses and start over. But instead... God taught them that as their figurehead had not participated in their sin, God was going to restore them, at least in part, due to their association with Moses, who had not been guilty of the sin they had committed. So as we come to this text, I I think it's fairly easy to see three things from chapter 35, verse 20, through the end of chapter 36. The first thing we see, even by this old and lesser covenant, is that their hearts had been affected positively. Their hearts had been affected positively. So just to ask you practically, how do you feel about your heart? How do you feel about its joys? How do you feel about its negative Effect by sin. How do you feel about your heart? What are the longings of your heart? Pastor Will pointed out that one of the areas that reveal to us the nature of our heart is the way that we deal with earthly treasures. How do we deal with possessions? How's our heart? The, the second thing we'll see in this text, in this old and lesser covenant, is that God's Spirit empowered people to what God had commanded. And then we'll see third, that those people whose hearts had been affected by the grace of God and whose hands had been equipped by the Spirit of God went and obediently did what God said. Those are the three things. Let's look at the first one. Doing what God commanded from the hearts, the text that I just read, verses 20 through 29 of Exodus 35. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came... Everyone whose heart stirred him 
and everyone whose spirit moved him, they brought a contribution together in order to provide for the construction of the tabernacle as God had commanded. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, and brought offering. This is the third time in ten chapters that we have read that the offering for building the tabernacle would be a free will offering. It is another good opportunity, though, for us to stress that the nature of the worship that pleases God is not obligation, but joyful delight. That's the nature of the worship that pleases God. I think we find that true in Psalm 51. For you, Lord, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give that. You will not take pleasure in burnt offering, or I would give that. However, I have learned of you that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. So again, for the third time in ten chapters, we are told that God says, Obey me. And he calls them to obey from their heart, not out of obligation. This sets a pattern for our worship and all the worship of God that will follow in biblical religion. Doug Stewart, a commentator, says this, Although God himself could provide anything ever needed for all of his purposes, including his own worship. Let me put my finger there. Is that true? Does God need you or I to worship? Is God dependent? Is his existence hanging in the balance of whether or not we will choose to worship? No, there's rocks for that if we don't do it, right? Even the rocks will cry out. So God could provide everything, including worship. However, resuming the quote, he delighted to give to his people a sense of involvement in their ongoing relationship to him, end quote. God delighted to delegate to his people a sense of, I've done everything. Here, why don't you do this? And those words are all chosen carefully. I've done everything. Here, why don't you do this? Everyone whose heart stirred them. So the offering was invited to be given from everyone. But it was only required those whose heart compelled them to do so. This is is an encouraging moment, I guess, in this old covenant. For a moment... The hearts of the people rejoiced more in their God, Yahweh, than in their possessions. That's an encouraging moment. It doesn't stay that way. You've read beyond this portion. You've read beyond Exodus. And you know that for a moment their hearts were tuned rightly. But it didn't take long until they fell out of tune. However, however, however... Those are encouraging words when it comes to the the blight of us as humans. However, the new covenant promises that there will be an ongoing, an endless heart change. Listen listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this to new covenant people. He says, each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each person should give what they've decided to give. God loves a cheerful giver. 
Would you take your Bibles? I want to I show you one really quick story from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So turn ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Each person should give according to their hearts, compelling. God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a story of abundant generosity out of deep poverty because hearts have been affected by the nature of the new covenant, which I'm going to talk about again in just a minute. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. I'm going to read quickly. You're probably familiar with this Macedonian gift. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. So right away, what's going to follow is called a grace of belonging to God that he's given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction when their economy was totally in the tank and inflation was almost unprecedented, <coughs> their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means. I don't even know how they accomplished it. It was more than I could have imagined impoverished people to do. Begging us, verse 4, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete, or so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and all love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command. You don't look at the Macedonians and say, see, they did it, you have to. But I am sharing this story to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Prove that there is a heart-level effect of gospel transformation. So we see here in Exodus, these people were commanded to give as they wanted. And in this moment in Exodus, they did well. But that won't continue. However, will it continue through the nature of the new covenant? So, in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to go to Jeremiah 31 three times this morning. If you want to put a piece of paper in Jeremiah 31, it might be helpful. I mentioned it at least two other times in our study of Exodus. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 says this. For in the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. Think of it this way, if I could give you a visual. When Moses comes down with the stone tablets... You could imagine as if Moses takes those tablets from God and puts those heavy stone tablets in the hands of people. And then says, hold them out in front of you like this. As long as you can hold them. Not long, right? I mean, even if they were not extremely heavy, over time they would have become extremely heavy. That is the nature of the Mosaic Covenant. Heavy, heavy stone tablets that the people who received them were told, do this as long as you can. And they could not. So the nature of the new covenant, God says, I'm going to do a miraculous internal work in them. 
I'm not going to put stone tablets in their hands. I'm going to instead write law on their heart. Where their passions are, where their ambitions and zeals exist, I'm going to write my will there. I will write it on their hearts. In Exodus, we read again, all the men and women whose hearts move them brought a free will offering to the Lord. I, I shared with you last week that we're going to read at the end of this story that they gave more than could be used. They, they had given too much. However, it's possible that some of the people didn't give anything, isn't it? If, in fact, it's true, each person who is moved in their heart to give should give, it's possible that some said, I'm, no, I'm not. While in the wilderness, while looking forward to the tabernacle, while being thankful they had been rescued, while looking forward to the promise, they probably had a lot of religious enthusiasm until God said, give your own possessions for the construction of this tent of meeting, this tent of tabernacle. And then... Probably some of their outward conformity was not enough to affect the way they handled or steward their treasures. Now, I want to say a word quickly about New Covenant giving. And obviously, I shouldn't stress New Covenant giving because Old Covenant giving is similar. It's meant to be compelled by the heart, not dutiful obligation. So let me say this. I don't have a biblical basis to tell every Christian they're obligated to give 10% in their tithe to the Lord. As I wrote that, I thought, there may be people in the church gathering who have been for generations, for decades, faithfully, dutifully giving 10% because someone probably said you were supposed to. I've had people say I was supposed to. 10%. And I, I don't have time this morning to debunk several of the arguments. I know there are several. We could go to Melchizedek and Abraham. We could talk about all that predating. <laughs> we can do that later. Um, I don't have a biblical basis, though, to tell you that you're obligated to give 10%. And to the person who's in the room who says, now he tells me. 40 years I've been trying to find the 10% in our budget to continue to do as someone had called on me to do. I want to encourage you. You've not been taken advantage of. You've not been a poor steward. I want to condition the fact that there is no command for us to give 10% in our worship by saying, from your heart give. And I think you can rest assured that a heart that knows the grace of God that has delivered us from bondage to sin in this life and its consequences of eternal death will probably delight more than 10%. I, I'm just saying the nature of the new covenant is liberty. And I think that liberty produces more fruit than legalism. And so if you say, well, I've been giving this whole 10%, now you're telling me, can I get any of that back? First of all, no. Second, I don't want you to feel like you in any way made a mistake. I would commend the folk, which by the way, statistically, I'm probably speaking to figurative people. <laughs> statistically, uh, even evangelical Christians are only giving about 3% of their income to worship. But I want you to be assured 
that giving of a changed heart where the law of God is written and our delight is in him will probably exceed any sort of obligation to give a certain percentage of your means. This is the miracle of spiritual regeneration. It's the splendor of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. I'm going to build on that now. So the heart has been changed. We see it there. It's changed for a moment. And we say, wow, wouldn't it be great if it stayed that way? And it doesn't in Exodus. But we have hope in the new covenant of Jesus Christ that it will someday stay that way. So let's keep building. Not only did they obey from their heart, but secondly, they did as they had had been commanded by the Spirit. In verse uh, 30 through chapter 36, verse 7, we read like this. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. See that there are laborers who have been filled with the Spirit of God. Now we've already studied this expression too. Yahweh has filled these folks with the Spirit of God. What does that mean exactly? Some have assumed that to be filled with the Spirit of God is to receive an emotive impetus, an out-of-body experience that cannot be explained other than this baptism of the Spirit. That's not correct at all in Scripture. The concept of being filled with the Spirit of God is often misunderstood. But it means... That every form of skill and strength to do what God has said will be empowered by God himself. Maybe you've heard certain Christian idioms like God will never call you to do what he doesn't also empower you to do. Maybe you heard that and that's sort of true. Or maybe you heard a lesser version of it where it says, God will never give you anything you can't handle. And that's trite. And for anyone who has heard that in their moment of grief, I'm sorry that you heard that. Because I think, quite frankly, God will give you things you can't handle. And apart from the power of His Spirit, you would otherwise be crushed. That's what's being said here. God's commanding His people, and in order for them to do as He's commanded, He powers them with His Spirit. Having from God the ability to do exactly what God has told them to do. Go build the tabernacle, as I told you. And then he powers them with his spirit to do it. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 says clearly, The spirit helps us in our weakness. I want you to know this morning, remember, remember as I was talking about the children's ministry in that book and how sometimes it gets real allegorical, like, hey, David did this and Daniel did this and the, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Medical, they did this and you should do all that. I, I want to remind you that all of that stuff was done by the power of the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God hovering over creation that empowered the Word to speak creation into existence. Genesis 1. It is the Spirit of God who empowered Joseph before Pharaoh. It is the Spirit of God who empowered David with the army of Israel at the, at facing the, uh, the giant, Goliath. 
It was the Spirit who empowered King Josiah to say, enough of idol worship, we're tearing it down. Who empowered Daniel and Jeremiah, or Mary and John the Baptist, Peter and the Apostle Paul. It was the Spirit of God who empowered them to do as God had said. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There are a variety of gifts and responsibilities and needs, but they all come from the power of the same Spirit for the common good. So, Bezalel and Ohiliab were servants equipped by God's Spirit to do exactly what God wanted them to do. So the product of their craftsmanship was fully of God. As though God himself was building the tabernacle. So for this moment, the Spirit empowers them to do what they had been told to do. But we know from the story that that won't always be the case. However, our hope is in a better promise. The promise of the new covenant. So if you still have a spot marked in Jeremiah 31, God simply says it this way. In the new covenant that I will give to my people, I will be their God. Not a golden calf, not something else, not, not money, not their own craftsmanship or abilities. I will be their God. They will know I have empowered their obedience and they will be my people. Is that true of us in the New Covenant? Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So when God says, I will be their God, they will be my people, the New Covenant explanation of our salvation is adoption. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons who cry out, God, you are my Father. That's the New Covenant. A heart change that empowers us to obey and call out, God is our Father. Covenant faith, the new covenant faith, is not a a religious self-improvement plan. I think you're probably aware of it, but I want to continue to say it. The new covenant faith of the gospel is not a self-help improvement plan. So we don't hold the Bible up to you. Let's say this text this morning. We don't hold the Bible up and say, look at Ahiliab. Wow, this guy is something, isn't he? I mean, he's a great craftsman. He's skilled in the trade and he gets to work and he leads other people to get to the work and they start building the tabernacle. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for Ahiliab. What a great example he is to us of how we should be able to do things and get stuff done. That is preaching hope in the Old Covenant. And quite frankly, apart from preaching hope in Jesus. Covenant faith is not religious self-improvement. It is a gift of God, covenant faith is a gift from God. In the heart to transform by the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. I'm 
I'm, I'm often reminded about the beauty of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. A regular attender to church sneaks out late at night under the cover of darkness and goes to find this radical teacher named Jesus from Nazareth. And he gets to this teacher and says, um, I have a question. Which, by the way, would you note in John chapter 3, he doesn't get the question out. He doesn't get the question out. We know the nature of his question from the nature of Jesus' answer, but Nicodemus never asked the question. And he says, have you so long been a teacher and you don't know that in order to inherit the kingdom, you have to be born over, literally over? Now, we've, we've Americanized the word and said again, that's what Nicodemus thought. Which the irony, right? The irony is that we've Americanized John 3 and we've made the same mistake for generations that Nicodemus made when Jesus said it the first time. Well, how can I be born again? Jesus, I didn't say again. Jesus didn't say again. He said over. Well, I'm not sure I understand. Well, there is a birth that is of this earth, but there is a birth that is from above, Jesus says. Go read the chapter. There's a birth that is from above. It's the birth of the Spirit. Hmm. I'm not sure I understand that. How will I know when that happened? And Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. And you can hear it, right? There's some high winds this week, wasn't there? Yesterday, there was some pretty stiff wind. Earlier this week, there was some wind. We had some stuff in our backyard that had been blown around. Now, I didn't go out and find that stuff displaced and go, there must be a ghost of some sort in my backyard. I right away assumed, wow, it was windier than I thought. The Spirit blows, and you hear it, but you don't always know where it comes from or where it goes. It's the same way with those born of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. So not only do we have this hope in the new covenant work of Jesus Christ, sealed by His blood, that our hearts can be changed. Jeremiah 31, I will write it on their hearts. They will be my people. I will be their God. Adoption. By new birth from above, they will be mine. But thirdly, they obeyed the commands with obedient hands. Exodus 36, look at verse 8. All the craftsmen among the workmen, workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They made it with fine twine linen, blue, purple, scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain is 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. They just did and they did and they did. In fact, I had to look up in this section 18 times. The text says they made, they made, they made, they made, they made. The heart had been changed in this story by God's grace. The people had been empowered to the work by His Spirit. Now the outpouring of that was faithful obedience. In verses 8 through 13, they make the tabernacle tent itself. In verses 14 through 19, they, they structure the, the covering, the weather covering over the tabernacle. In verse 20 through 30, they make posts and bases and tenons and frames. 
In verse 31 through 34, they make the bars, the cross sections. In verse 35 through 38, they made the blue, the purple, the scarlet veil with the interwoven cherub, the hooks, and the screen with all of its needlework for the doorways. I'd ask you to notice that everything they did followed what God had done. He had changed their hearts through the revelation of his gracious forgiveness. He had empowered them to the task by the power of his spirit. But we can't overlook that it is required in stewardship that these people be faithful. Can't overlook it, can we? I thought about passion, skill, and hard work. As I was writing this sermon, our son's here for the first time in three weeks because he's been at football training camp the last three weeks. So we've been really mindful. How was today? It was terrible, like yesterday. Maybe tomorrow will be better. I doubt it. We've been checking in all the time. And, and we've witnessed that in his life he has this passion, this enthusiasm for sports. He loves competitive sports. We've also noticed that thanks to his mother's genes, he has certain skills in athleticism. But if he had gone away to training camp and said, I really love playing sports, and, and I'm kind of gifted, I can do stuff. So just so you know, coach, when game time comes around, I'll be here in my room if you need me. Right? 21 days of 12 or 14 hours a day being responsible to go and do what coach commanded. Well, no, no, I've got the heart and I've got the skill. I, I don't really want to do the rest. It's hot today. I'll be here if you need me. He would be unfit for the team, wouldn't he? We would say that is uncharacteristic of a member of the team. There are numerous imperative commands that these people received expressly make the tabernacle. But there are a number of imperative commands that we have received by Christ. Do you feel like you know the Ten Commands from memory better than you know the commands of Jesus Christ? Like, do you feel like you know what your Lord, Jesus Christ, commanded well? There are numerous imperative commands to faithfully steward. However, it seems to be a growing popularity to somehow honor Christ by dismissing his commands. Suggest, it's suggested by false teachers that it's most honoring to Christ to not try to do anything you're told to do. <laughs> Does that work for you as a parent, by the way? As a mom and dad? Listen, you really want to honor me as your father? You need to disregard the things I say from here on forward. And that seems weird. But there is actually a claim among false teachers. The false teachers, by the way, are called anti-nomian. No law. Just Christ. Just grace. And anyone who tries to tell you there is law is trying to put you under the obligation of dutiful obedience. And they're abusive, frankly. Hmm. I'm having a hard time figuring out how that fits with Jesus' instruction as the shepherd to his sheep. 
Antinomianism teaches this. This is a quote that I read this week from Ligonier Press. Antinomianism teaches that because God's grace is greater than sin, we're no longer under any obligation to obey God. Much antinomianist teaching denies that someone can displease God by their disobedience. Accordingly, they suggest believers are no longer under a need to heed the instruction of Scripture. So many forms of antinomianism, end end quote, many forms of antinomianism focus on justification and then disregard any sense of sanctification. However, Jesus strictly condemned antinomianism. Certainly in this text in Exodus, we have these ten commands. Do you know how many commands Jesus expressly gave his people? Thirty-eight at least. In the most black and white definition of a command from Jesus to us, there are at least 38. They range from keep my commands, that's one of them, to lead by serving, to rejoice when persecuted, and so on. These are commands. Jesus condemned this sense of sure your heart's changed and sure your your hands are skilled, but don't worry about doing anything. Jesus condemns that. The Apostle Paul condemns that. Romans chapter 3, he is being accused of being antinomian, no law. He's being accused of being antinomian. He says this, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what are we to say? Question mark. That somehow God is to blame if he punishes our disobedience? Or why not do bad? It's going to turn out good, right? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. Wow. Paul wasn't really having it, was he? You're going to claim that I disregard the instructions of our Lord? Your condemnation is just for saying that. These people had a heart change, empowered hands, and then instruction and I I want to speak to you about the dangers of antinomianism but as your pastor you my brothers and sisters in Christ us growing together I have to say that in my under shepherding I don't think that the next great peril for you is that you'll become too lawless I don't think that's the next great risk that you're about to discard the instructions of Jesus. I do think, though, that there is a pressure to feel self-sufficient or even acceptable to God by law-keeping. However, I know that in a room like this one, there's probably a very healthy variety of opinions. Some people might say, I, I, just, I just think God wants me to do better. I, I just think Ahiliab's a good example for me. And this week, I am really going to try to be more like Ahiliab. That would be legalism. That would be law-keeping to honor God. And that's not the nature of even the old covenant, much less the new. But there, there might also be some people in the room who are saying, yeah, the new covenant. I got a new heart. 
a new skill to do things, and I'm just going to do things because that's what God wants. I don't got to worry about a thing. And there might be some people in the room who are feeling tempted to that. So to guard against that, let me remind you of this. The temple that was in heaven, remember the one God showed Moses? He said, look, look at this one. I made this temple. Now I want you to model it, make a tabernacle, and ultimately a temple like that. Remember that the temple in heaven didn't require our construction. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, that didn't require our construction either. While stewardship, true, not our construction. We didn't even show up till it was all done. I want to remind you that the temple that's coming down from heaven, John got a chance to look ahead and see it. There's a temple coming down. God will be with his people. Our, his dwelling place will be with men at his second coming. That temple didn't require our construction. What did Jesus say at his ascension? I go to make a place. I'll, I'll bring you there. And then I'll come again. And I would contend that as in a moment, we are going to commission you to go out from here with hearts changed and hands empowered to do what he's commanded. Namely, we commission you to go into all the world and teach people to do what Jesus commanded. You understand the nature of the Great Commission? Go everywhere and tell people to obey the things I said to obey. Jesus is really not getting the antinomian thing well, is he? He's really not communicating it clearly. He says, go teach them to do what I said to do. And in a minute, we're going to commission you to that. And I want you to know that your labor in that, building a spiritual temple, is labor in constructing a temple that Colossians says is made without hands. Made without hands. Maybe the best way I can say this to you, and I would long for more conversation for you to have among yourselves or with us. Go and do what is being done by God. Seeing this section where Israel does what they're told is not a call for us to go, wow, I wish we were more like Israel. Clear? That is not the point of the sermon. We could, we could really be more like them. Not the point of the sermon. It's not even to say, oh, the old covenant had these moments where the people were really conditioned by it to do what was good. But it is an opportunity for us to look into these chapters and rejoice in Christ who is the high priest, the mediator of a better covenant. So I've taken you now three times into Jeremiah 31. Now would you go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Hebrews 8, 6 says this. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old. 
because the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look forward to a second. Right? If it's not broke, don't fix it. But it was. Weak hands were its weakness. Verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. You, you see verse 8? He finds fault with the old covenant in them. They were the problem of the old covenant. There was moralism and outward conformity. There was religious peer pressure, but there was not heart change empowered by the Spirit of God to faithful obedience. That's the new covenant. And that's ours in Christ. The blood of Christ has sealed the more excellent covenant. And He Himself, King Jesus, mediates the better covenant. So what I want to say to you is this. The splendor of the new covenant is not just the preservation of the saints. It's the perseverance of the saints. I'm going to read Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I would say to you that in the completed work of Christ at the cross, in the power of His resurrection, yours in Him is guaranteed eternal life. It's guaranteed eternal life. You cannot be stolen. He will not let your redemption spoil. He will preserve you. He who is faithful will keep you, and no one will take you from his hand. That's your preserving. The question is, what will it look like from now until eternity? What will your walk look like from now until eternity? Back in the old covenant, or back in the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the following statement is, no longer will they have to command each other, saying, remember the Lord, know the Lord, don't forget what he said, for they will all know me. They will know. There will be a radical change that will be permanent and they will walk like this. Not only does he keep you, but he directs you. He preserves you, but you will persevere in the new covenant. From here until home, you will walk obedient to what is commanded. Not perfectly, not flawlessly. But progressively, consistently, because this is the work of the new covenant in God's people. What I mean, let me summarize Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have been obeying, but now 
not only in my presence, but in my absence, keep obeying. And then he has this statement, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a comma at the end of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How many of you have just been debilitated by a fear that maybe you're not actually saved? And maybe you came across this verse and went, yeah, that's, that's really speaking to me. I'm terrified that I might not be saved. Who do I got to go to talk to or where do I got to be to work out this salvation with trepidation? Comma. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Period. And what I'm telling you is that the power of Jesus Christ, as it's revealed in what we know as the new covenant, doesn't only keep you from falling, but keeps you walking. He who began that work will complete it. So, (laughs) you know, in a sermon like this, you want to get done, and you want to give people something to go and do. And I've thought a lot about it. I sat at my desk. I thought, okay, the nature of the new covenant. Old covenant wasn't enough. We need something better. Look to Jesus, whose blood, in fact, has offered for us, guaranteed for us. He's mediating for us. Our hearts will change. Our hands will be empowered by his spirit. And we will definitely continue this walk of faith. Now go and trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's what I have to give you. And sometimes in our generation, in our culture, people go, that's cheap. That is absolutely the most treasured thing I can give you, is see that in Christ alone, all our hope in his promises are yes and amen. He is our only hope in life and death. Let's pray. Father, your wonderful high priest is our only hope. His willing sacrifice The pouring out of his lifeblood. The the sinless conquering of the grave and the power of his resurrection mediates the best covenant. You are a faithful God who worked in your people in the wilderness their obedience. But it's obvious by the fact that you have graced us with a better covenant that their weaknesses was the weakness of that covenant. But in the new covenant of Christ's completed work, even our weaknesses can't undermine its splendor. So God, as we stand here today as a family of faith, cause our hearts to be trained joy-filled at the work of your Spirit in us. We are your people. You are our God. For all of those who are looking to Christ Jesus alone, looking to his completed work, there definitely is a promise that we will be kept from failing, but there is also a promise that we will be empowered to obedient service. So thank you for the things that we have heard from our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for the way that you've removed the weaknesses from our heart and our hands and given us a new delight to grow now in these things, in our strides forward and in our stumbling. Thank you for the work of Christ in his new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.